Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is half an hour of science on your radio. My name is Claire and boy do we have a great half an hour of science for you on the show this week. Don't we, Stu? We do. And Chris Chris brought in one of his famous experiments. Have you ever wondered how when you carefully put your headphones in your pocket... How the next time you get them out of your pocket, they're all tangled up and you every have to time. untangle. Yeah, every time. I don't even think there's that much movement like in my bag, and but it's still like completely tangled. Just happens every time. Oh, now, so Chris, Chris's experiment in the studio is all about the physics of how stuff gets tangled up, basically. Stu, now it's just you and me in the studio. Um, do you think maybe physicists uh, have too much time on their hands, that they're, doing, they're writing papers about... About string. About, <laughs> and not string theory, no, mind you. No, just... How, just string. It, is, and it, how is, it, a, it is a hypothesis about string specifically, but it's not string theory as such. <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe they do have a bit too much time on their hands, but they're all trying, you know, they, they, you know the string theory stuff is not actually something you can experimentally prove, so they do have a lot of experimenting time left over, I guess. Oh, boy. All right. Well, Chris is going to be with us later to talk us through the string experiments rather than the string theory. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there'll be some theory knowing Chris. Stu, what else do we have on the show today? Well, have you have you noticed how true crime is like a <laughs> big thing? Are we getting into true crime science? Yes. Oh, my But goodness. not CSI-style science. We're actually looking at a mystery for some ecologists in Western Australia. Who- that is great. Everyone loves the True Crime podcast now. Yeah. We should really be getting on board. And, yeah. and we are. Lost in science crime. <laughs> no, it doesn't lost work. Lost in crime science? Lost yeah. in crime in lost... No. Lost in crime science investigation. <laughs> no. Look, we'll workshop we'll, the name off air. Yeah, we'll, we'll stick with our with our regular name. But um, yeah, we will, we will be looking at a... a a mystery involving dead bodies later Dead bodies in the bush. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, if you like true crime, if you like string, and who doesn't, let's be honest, (laughs) then stay tuned. On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I have a experiment to do. A uh, experiment or a, an, experiment. an experiment? Okay, it's a bit of like bit of like in studio physics. Um, this this one I've been wanting to do for a while. It is actually a bit of an old story, really. Um, old in a couple of different ways. Um, the actual study it's based on dates back to 2007. So yes, it's pretty old. But also, it was it's been quoted a lot when people talk about things like how yeah headphones get tangled in your pocket. And now everything's getting wireless, so I feel that's out of date as well. But um, I don't know. We're going to tackle it anyway. I've still, got, I've still got wired headphones in. Well, they're in my pocket and they're tangled. So Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
Me yeah. too. Yeah. Actually, well, I have I, two pairs, and I, they normally get tangled together. I was going to ask you to volunteer your, your headphones for the experiment, but maybe we wouldn't do that because that might be noisy. Okay. But maybe we can try it if this doesn't work with the string. Yeah, maybe. Yes, I'll give him the game away here. Anyway, so yeah, like I said, this dates back to 2007. Um, this was a study by biophysicists Dorian Raymer and Douglas Smith from University of California, San Diego. Now, the story is with this is that uh, Raymer, who was a student, undergrad student at the time, wanted to study knot theory, was interested in the theory of knots. Right. Now, the theory of knots sounds like a kind of one of those jokey things that people... Knot theory. Kind of, it's, it's it's a theory. It's, Wait, knot theory? No, it is Are theory. Are you sure it's theory? It's, it's not theory. It's not theory. No, it is theory. Are you sure it's not some sort of cultural studies theory from the 90s? Not. <laughs> Quite possibly. Actually, it dates back to the 19th century, I believe, when uh, Lord Kelvin, who you may have heard of, uh, he has like a unit of temperature named after him. He, uh, he had this theory that atoms were kind of vortex knots, like knots of like a vortex. And so the different kinds of knots would be the different kinds of atoms. And he hoped to find an explanation for the periodic table, the elements, bringing us back to the international yeah. year of the periodic table, um, by classifying the different kinds of knots. If only he'd been looking at proteins, he would have been more on the right track. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. Um, proteins and also DNA knots mm. up. Now, um, so back to our Raymer and Smith. Now, they were actually interested in, in the, um, the DNA of viruses, which are often knotted up. It's not clear why. Um, they're, they're knotted, perhaps, so you can join up to kind of, you know, different segments of DNA. But, um, so yeah, so Raymond wanted to study knot theory. Smith, who was a supervisor, said, well, how about we do some knot experiments instead? And they're interested in the in the DNA of viruses, but they were kind of um, uh, small and difficult to do experiments on. So they tried string instead, because they could just go to the hardware store. Yeah. Which they did. Okay, so what we have here, we've got a kind of an, a replication of their experiment. They're, it's not exactly the same. So they had a piece of string. Um, Claire, I'm going to give you this piece of yeah, string. Yeah, I can confirm that Chris is giving me a piece of string. It's like a beige string. Now, is, there, about, nothing, is there nothing up his sleeve as well? Can you check? It's about the length of my arm width, actually. That's very good. Can you just drop it in the box? Um, in any particular fashion? Just, just kind of randomly drop it in. Randomly drop it in. There you go. Well, actually, in the experiment, in the experiment, I'll do it. I'll do it because you did it wrong. (laughs) In the experiment, (laughs) they dropped it in like this. They just kind of went like that kind of thing. It wasn't random. That was the most deliberate thing I've ever seen you do. Okay. Well, for me, that's quite deliberate. Okay. So, okay, they, they popped some string in a box. Now, Claire, I'm going to get to put the lid on this box. So what I want you to do is tumble the box for us. They, in the experiment, they did it about 10 times around, like once a second. So just get you to tumble that a few times, at least 10 times around. Okay. And, and so this was their basic experiment. They did it, like, mechanically. They had, like, a motorized setup, and they had a special box. I think it was a, a different size to this. Uh, and it's they... probably just one of those paint shakers from the hardware store <laughs> where they got possibly, the string. Possibly. How many times have we done this now? Um, a bit over 10. Okay. So, anyway, we're going to get the string out of the box now and see whether it's, it's, it's turned into a knot. Okay. And Claire, do you want to try Would you that? like me to open the yeah, box yes, and get please. the string out? So how, do, how, how do we know it's turned into a knot? How well, do I get the string out? Just do with your fingers. Like that? And just to see, like you see, like whether it's got any knots in it. 
That one didn't. Okay, <laughs> let's uh, let's try that again. Okay. Because okay, so um, I'll maybe, do it maybe again. I'll, maybe I'll turn it is, over ten this times. This is genuine. This is genuine um, science here. So anyway, so what they did, they did this experiment. Um, they did a lot of different experiments on different lengths of string. What they found is that the string they used, when it was less than forty-six centimeters in length, they got very unlikely to get a knot. Um, but then the probability of getting a knot rose very rapidly until the string got to about one hundred and fifty centimeters in length. And then it kind of leveled off. That was kind of the maximum, about 50% chance of getting a knot in the string. Now, this string here is about 150 centimetres in length. So I reckon we've got a 50-50 chance <laughs> of getting uh, a knot in it. So should we try it? Now? Yeah. An extra shake. And if this doesn't yeah. work, if this doesn't work, I have headphones. Oh, that didn't work again. We're going to go full on. We're going to use the um, the the best kind of equipment we have for getting knots in Yeah, things. look, I mean, headphones. there's something about the headphones. They're sort of like some... There's the friction. They're usually the, sort of plasticky yeah, coated the and they have a bit of friction coat. to yeah. them that seems to lend them to being tangled. Yeah, exactly. This is going to... Um, make a noise. Make a noise. Yeah, that's fine. So, it, so people just... understand we're doing it. So, yeah, like I said, they the way it works, I'll tell you while you're doing that, I'll tell you how it works. Because then they did a model to work out why the knots are forming. And they realised from like, looking at the different kind of knots that formed what was actually going on. And it's kind of the knots form like um, a braid in hair, for instance. So essentially the string or the cord kind of loops around in loops and then the free end will cross over the different loops and sometimes it will cross over in such a way as to form a knot. Mm. And so you get these different kind of braids of knots by it being in the, in the container. Do you reckon that's about enough times? Yeah, it's enough times. All right, see what happens. So knotted. That is quite knotted. Very knotted. That is quite knotted. Yeah, extremely knotted. Thank you very much for that, Claire. Um, Of course, the only thing that could get more knotty than a pair of headphones would probably be a slinky, I imagine. But we're not going to go to that level of difficulty. No, you're not using my slinky. No. So anyway, that's the way that that it works. I did this experiment to find out basically how knots form. It sounds kind of like a silly experiment, but it has this work has been cited a few times in work on proteins and DNA. Mm. Um, also, um, medical equipment sometimes there's like kind of long thin bits that can get knotted up. Um, waves. Uh, and recently there was something on vortexes of turbulence using um, this theory to describe that. So perhaps Lord Kelvin had a point about the the vortexes. Anyway, look, it's an interesting idea. As you said, it's kind of important for proteins. Um, proteins form all kinds of shapes. They're like it started as a long string of amino acids, and they form all kinds of shapes, and the shapes are really important. And we don't really understand how they form those shapes. Currently, there's a lot of excitement about using, using artificial intelligence to do it um, and deep learning, that kind of thing. The people who made uh, AlphaGo, which you may have heard of, the artificial intelligence thing that beat the game Go, they have a new program called AlphaFold, which is apparently getting some success with working out how proteins fold up into into a certain shape. So yeah, there are different ways being tried, but perhaps some simple physics, some headphone cables and a box can help explain some of these mysteries of chemistry. Now, don't be alarmed. 
don't be scared. This story does sound pretty gruesome <gasps> up front. Okay. I just want to put a warning out there for everyone listening. Okay, this is a disclaimer. Hang in there. But if you are a bit squeamish, maybe uh, just just take a little break, go make a cup of tea or something like okay. that. Okay. Are we talking human anatomy squeamish? Well, possibly, but we're talking anatomy Ooh. squeamish. Okay, anatomy squeamish. Okay. Okay, so it's a mystery story here. Oh! <gasps> I love a mystery story. Love, I love a good mystery too. Okay. So investigators in remote Western Australia were faced with a big mystery. Oh. They kept finding dead bodies in bushland. <gasps> oh, oh, this sounds awful. Yeah. With the same apparent cause of death oh. and no witnesses. Right. The bodies also had some of their internal organs removed. Oh. Using the same method every time. And some of them look like their legs had actually been skinned <gasps> and eaten. Is this is this like Jack the Ripper? It's sort of pretty gruesome. It sounds like some sort of gruesome killing spree, doesn't it? It, it definitely does. Okay. I don't so know how this is your science story. I'm just going to pull it back, it back for a second. So the investigators were ecologists. Okay. And the bodies that they were looking at were bodies of cane toads ah. in the Kimberley. <laughs> Still, that's pretty full on. They just suddenly started finding these cane toads all over the place. What? Yeah. And they'd been gutted and skinned and partly eaten. Oh, partly eaten. Partly eaten. But who was the culprit. Well, that's, that's, that is the that's question. That's the mystery. Um, they didn't really know what was going on. So cane toads, we all know cane toads are a massive problem in Australia. Yeah, well, I mean, ever since the mid-1930s when they were released um, in Queensland, they've been getting around Australia. And, you um, know, famously deliberately re- released in Queensland. Famously deliberately released To solve a problem yeah. which was later solved by some other means. Um, But, yeah, so they were released in Queensland, arrived in the Kimberley, which is all the way over the other side of the country. It's quite far, really, isn't it? Very long way. Um, Only about eight years ago in the Kimberley, they got cane toads. They migrated across from Queensland through the Northern Territory over the sort of latter half of the 20th century. And I think they're actually getting bigger as they move across the country as well, right? Soon they're just going to all be hypno-toad. <laughs> they're just going to be these giant toads. <laughs> they will all soon be <laughs> hypno-toad. Um, but, okay, so the, the issue with cane toads, it's not just that they're gross-looking to some people. They produce... As, they are Australia's number one hated invasive species. Well, yeah. Even though biologically, ecologically speaking, they don't do as much damage as something like the rabbit. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, they're they're mostly due to displacement. But the other other thing that they do is produce toxic chemicals in their actual, inside their body, basically in their gallbladder mainly, um, which means most animals can't eat them without getting sick or some of them even die when they try and eat a cane toad because there's just all all this toxin produced inside the cane toad. So the toad numbers continue to increase while the native animals decrease as a result, as well as from, you know, competition. They're out-competing other food sources. Right, right. And so they would the, be out-competing other frogs that, yeah. are, um, that, are, that might be in the same ponds as them, but and also, they're also taking down some mammals and birds. Yeah, and, and they're reptiles. also eating tadpoles of other frogs and stuff like that oh, as well. Yeah. So they're, they're really oh. full on when they're out there. They're also cannibals. 
Yeah, they'll eat each other if there's nothing else to eat. (laughs) Um, So they are a big problem. So when a team of ecologists came across reports of dead cane toads in the Kimberley, they were interested in what was killing them and... Uh, you know how why they were doing it in this in this very um, skillful way to I mean, it's avoid a, the toxic parts of the animal. It sounds like something out of Jack the Ripper, something out of London in like you know yeah, the late nineteenth like, century. It sounds like they need you know well they so they looked around uh, for more cane toad bodies and they found them. They actually found sort of half decaying ones in ponds and stuff just lying all over the place. All right. And and they weren't that far from a water source? No, they're always around a water source. So, you know, the toads can travel across country. Obviously, there's lots Obviously. of areas <laughs> of Australia that don't have much water. But they do tend to spend most of their time and they, and they spawn in the water and stuff like that as well. So these were all in sort of ponds and billabongs and stuff all, all around the place. Um, so they all had the same incision on their abdomen – uh, and always had the hearts and the liver removed. So it does sound like someone with someone with some medical training is behind <laughs> all of this. I love it that you say removed. Well, well, I mean, at this point they're, they just may going, they're been, missing. Yeah, they're, they're missing. missing. There may have been gnaw marks. Yeah, like, well, like teeth th- marks. this is the other thing. So they found that the gallbladder had been moved inside the body or been pulled out of the body. Oh, and the gallbladder, like you said, that's the part that that's the toxic, most gives, toxic part that creates the toxins. Yeah. and often the legs had the toxic skin peeled off, and some <laughs> of the muscles eaten. So they were eating the frog's legs and peeling off the skin, which oh is also my toxic. Goodness. So nobody seen it. Nobody saw this happening. So they didn't really know what it was, but they had a possible clue: teeth marks on the remains of the toads, especially on the leg bones. Oh, teeth all the way through to the leg bone. Well, they gnawed off the <laughs> muscles off the leg and left little scratchy yes. teeth marks on the leg bones. And that narrowed them down to a prime suspect, which is... Well, actually, it's actually one of my favourite animals, really. Is, okay. It's oh, Australia's... Koala. No. No. <laughs> unless they Well, maybe they're, you know, rabid koalas or something. No. Um, was it a, oh, you know, one of our desurids, one of our native carnivorous marsupials, like a, no. like a quoll or something? No, Rascagale? it wasn't, it wasn't a quoll, although they're pretty cool too. It was in fact, Australia's answer to the otter, the native water rat, which I think is much better known as the Rikali. Oh, it was a Rikali. Yeah. So I love the Rikali as well, Stu. They are really cool. They're very, very cool. Um, so, Rikali are indigenous rodents, but they're quite large. They grow to about a kilo in weight, a bit over a kilo, some of the biggest ones. Um, and they're among one of the few true mammals in Australia as well. So, they're actually. When you say plac- true mammals, you mean placental, placental mammals. mammals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't um, be mammal racist here. Mammalist. Marsupialist. Yeah, yeah. All right, I won't be marsupialist. They are placental mammals. There you go. And they're also one of the few predators or few native predators on the continent. We do have the other ones like your quolls and, you know... Tassie devils. Tassie devils and, and even numbats and things like that are known to have a chomp of various things. But Yeah, actually, fun facts to you. Did you know this? The numbat is the closest living relative to the Tasmanian tiger. So if we just selectively bred the numbat, we yeah. could 
bring back the Tassie yeah, Tiger. Yeah, or if you wanted to um, maybe cl- – yeah, yeah, bring back the Tasmanian Tiger, you – Breed it back. Breed it back through the numbat. Yeah, Jurassic yeah, Park yeah. style. They actually kind of look similar too. They've got the yeah, stripey – Yeah, the yeah. stripey mm. and the pointy nose. Mm. Just a bit of a difference in size. Yeah, well – you can always select for bigger animals, though. That's the, that's the great thing about breeding. Look at the size of some of those dogs out there. Um, the Rikali hunt all kinds of other creatures. They're not picky they, about what they They eat. love a bit of crustacean. Yeah, yabby, apparently yabbies is one of their main dietic choices. Now, I've, I've come to Rikali's quite, um, quite late in life, but I'm really enamoured of them. They seem to have, like, the cunning and intelligence um, of a, you know a rodent, and they seem to like make their burrows in the rivers, and they've got that wonderful little white bit on the back of their tail. Yeah, yeah, they're they're cool looking animals. They're all over the place though. They live on the waterfront, like even in Victoria. They're in New South Wales, in Queensland. They're all through Australia, pretty much. Um, Chances just, are you've probably seen a rakali and probably thought it was a rat. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people do think they're rats, but they, you know, they can swim. You see them swimming sometimes. Um, they're very, very versatile little creatures, um, and and it makes sense. They hunt things. They hunt lizards. They hunt crustaceans. They hunt smaller mammals as well. Um, they, like like what? Or just you know, like smaller, like smaller m- mice or yeah, antichinus or yeah, something like that. Yeah, antichinus. Whatever you know, there's a lot of little tiny marsupials around the place as well, yeah, and, and obviously other rodents. Whatever they can catch, pretty much <laughs> by the sound of things. They eat reptiles. They eat birds. They eat birds' eggs. They eat fish, and probably most importantly, they eat frogs. <laughs> so they do hunt frogs and toads. Well, apparently so. <laughs> Um, so in, in WA, the rest of the country, they are pretty well considered safe. They're not endangered or anything. In WA, they're still considered, considered a species of concern because the populations are much smaller than they've been historically because of the, the general, uh, you know, culprits in these cases is cats and foxes and domestic dogs and wild dogs and things like that. That's really interesting Con- considering Rakali and Victoria, um, live quite close to, really urban areas where you would see a lot of invasive species. But in in WA, you've, you've got the threatened population. Yeah. Well, and it depends where you are. But they also were um, hunted for their fur until oh, that's right. relatively there was, recently. There, there was a whole trade in Rakali fur because yeah. it is, I mean, you know, they're semi-aquatic, semi-land-based. So they have the webbed feet. The webbed hind feet. And, and they've got that really, like, waterproof fur, don't they? Waterproof, really soft fur, apparently. Um, so, yeah, there was a trade. So that's yeah. part of the reason that, were, you know, that they were, uh, people were worried about them. But the threat of being poisoned by invading toads is, you know, still a bit of a worry. Of course. Um, of course, the Rikali are smarter than that. They are... <laughs> They are fast learners, and they're smart enough to work out which toad bits to avoid eating. They just push them to the side of their plate <laughs> and eat around them. Oh, gallbladder. <laughs> Gallbladder's Look, out. It, it is incredible. Like, are they using their sense of smell to do that? Like, how? Well, the, the researchers... What, what's the behaviour? Well, the researchers think that they probably do this just with all the frogs that they eat, and they only eat bits of them, which is the most nutritious bit. So it's probably partly instinctive but also partly learned behavior because um uh the rikali look after their young until they're large enough to hunt for themselves so they keep them around for you know a few weeks after they're born and teach them stuff so they've learned how to hunt frogs 
you know, in a certain way, and that actually translates into hunting cane toads. But they may be using their sense of smell or just watching each other and going, hey, that guy got really sick when he ate the skin, so I'm going to avoid the skin or, you know. Is that um, is that fairly common for rodent species to to live with their, you know, live for a couple of weeks after? Often not. They just sort of, once they get fur, they just run off. Yeah, wow. But the Rikali sort of actually bond a little bit and have a little bit of Rikali school uh, <laughs> before they leave home. Um, so... The other positive thing to come out of this was that the Rikali target larger toads. So they're targeting adult breeding individual toads. Right, and and that's – is that quite unusual? It is because um, some animals can eat cane toads, but they eat them when they're babies and they have got less toxin in them, so they're less poison – more less poisonous to the animals that eat them. So they eat the little tiny ones. Right. But the full-grown adults... Too much poison. It's too much poison for most animals. But the Rikali have figured out, hey, just don't eat the poison bits and you can feast on the heart and liver. (laughs) Um, Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I've heard of uh, certain birds eating cane toads. So the um, black kite and the whistling kite Mm. eat cane toads. I've heard of certain snakes eating cane toads. Yeah. But I've never heard of a mammal eating a cane toad before. Well, there's not, yeah, there's not that many carnivorous mammals around, but, yeah, it, it is pretty unusual. You would think that – well, obviously the other ones I mean, can just – and ha- living to tell the tale, I should, well, that's I should it. say, yeah. <clears throat> um, the other animals may be able to, you know, handle the toxin a bit better or something like that, but the Rikali's just avoiding it, which is pretty it's impressive. very clever. Um, so hopefully they're newly adapted – behavior can help stop the spread of the cane toad and stop them displacing other indigenous species and also possibly help reduce the impact on other predators who aren't smart enough to figure it out. Um, You know, there'll be less of them around for them to accidentally eat. If these were targeting the breeding adults, then there'll be less cane toads in general as well. So do you think these Rakali could, I guess, provide another layer of, I guess, defense against the cane toads in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, anything that can slow down their spread is a good thing, and anything that targets the, the adults is a better thing to do. And also, the, the un, really, the only ways they've been sort of trying to control them is controlling their, the, the tadpole stage of um, their life cycle, which also disrupts all of the other animals that live in the same places as them. So it's not really that great. But if you can get the adults, then that is... A big step in the right direction. So this research was actually published this month in the Australian Journal of uh, the the journal Australian Mammalogy. Um, Hard word to say. Great journal. To mammalogy. Be in. Yes. Um, in an article called "Eat Your Heart Out," <laughs> and it's all about how Riccali eat parts of the cane toads. I think um, they've won the prize for the best named journal article of 2019. So, I'm at least going to um, give them uh, a recommendation for that prize. I'm going to put them up for that prize. Is there, is there such a prize? Are you just going to have to set no. one up? Yeah, I'm going to have to set one up. Um, certainly the best title in Australian mammalogy this year. Certainly. Possibly. Um, but look, the hero of the story, the Rikali, they're pretty little-known animals, and I really think they ought to be more famous than they are. And 
that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for staying with us and chatting all about string and Rakali. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. We're on Facebook. We're Lost in Science on 3CR. Find us on your podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. Or just tune in again next week when Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.